Good morning. I'm Linda Keller, and I uh, will be reading with you today 1 Chronicles 17, 1 through 15. And you can find that in your Pew Bible on page 348. I'll repeat 1 Chronicles 17, 1 through 15. <clears throat> now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in, for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak any word of the judges, oops, let me read that. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with the, your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm in him my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for sending your son. Spirit, thanks for your presence. Would you now fill this place? in ways that we can sense you moving and speaking, comforting, correcting. Would you grant repentance? Would you soften hard hearts? 
Would you be tender towards those that are wounded? And I pray the good news of what you promised in your son and what your son accomplished and in what he promised to do in his return uh, would be life-giving for us. Would it be reorienting for us? Would it, would it change us this morning? Uh, so you tell us that your word doesn't return void. We ask that it would have its powerful effect this morning. And we want to open our hearts. So would you help us to do that, to receive from you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, it's good to see everybody. If this is your first time with us, welcome. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and we are in week two of the season of Advent. I'm not sure what your background is or if you grew up around church or in a different kind of faith tradition, but Advent is four weeks leading up to Christmas, and it's really designed to help us slow down, be thoughtful, um, and just focus just a little bit. And it's implied in that that we have a hard time doing that, which I don't mean like as an accusation, maybe you're doing great, you live this zen-like state of a calm, peaceful heart all the time, but most of us, it's kind of a busy season, there's stuff at work, stuff at school, stuff with your extended family, there's travel stuff, you're buying stuff, you're wishing you hadn't bought stuff, I mean all that stuff kind of happens around the clock, and so it's a season for us, kind of traditionally as a church, actually for centuries to slow down, so even before like the modern rust uh, rush of Christmas, it's something the church found helpful. And all the more, because of where we are, I think we find it somewhat helpful. And so this is week two, as we just stop and ask, really, what is Christmas for? That's kind of the question I want to put in front of you this morning. Like, like, what would you say to that? Why this season? Why these weeks? I mean, why not just like one day and get it over with? Like, why slow down and take some time in this season? And I wonder how you would answer that. And I was thinking through like just kind of cultural answers to that, and I promise this is not like a Christmas movie series, but I referenced the movie last week, but I thought about the movie Fred Claus, which is cinematic genius, by the way. Um, I think it's Vince Vaughn, is that the guy's name? He is Santa Claus's older brother in the movie who is very bitter of his older brother. And the movie kind of has this very predictable plot line where at the end of it, of course, they're holding hands and everything is fantastic. But at the beginning of it, you see Fred Claus, the older brother, kind of spreading this dissent about Christmas. He's jealous of his brother, so he calls Santa like this attention-seeking junkie, and he does this big, like, scam, and how could a guy do breaking and entering of, you know, billions of homes every, every night? Like, it's just a really funny scene, but he has this moment where he essentially is saying, like, Christmas is a sham. And, and maybe, like, the idea of how much it costs you and how much time you spend, you might be going like, yeah, what, what is the point of this whole thing? And I, I think we need to just stop and ask, like, is it more than just what we celebrate this one morning? So even if you're from a faith tradition and you would talk about Jesus being the reason for the season, I think even in that, there's still room to talk about, like, is Christmas for more than just that one day? Is it, is it bigger than that? Does it impact more than that? I'm thankful for seasons in the church calendar where we get to slow down and have some focus, but I wonder if you would agree that Christmas is meant to have a bigger meaning. Maybe even bigger than just these four weeks of Advent. Like, is there more that we should be engaging in? And, and I think the way these texts teach us, it's uh, undoubtedly saying yes to the fact that there should be more. The fact that it makes um, or takes thousands of years for the promises that God makes for the Christmas child to come, I think speaks to its significance. The fact that there's lots of confusion and there is um, still a longing inside of our hearts that's, that's almost universal speaks to the kind of significance of it. 
the way it's all throughout the scriptures, right? It starts in Genesis and goes all the way through the Old Testament, tracing this theme of God promising to send one that was going to make all things new. That whole like long promise, I think, elevates for us our awareness of the need for Christmas to be more than just about one day. So, so the scriptures say things like uh, we should open up our eyes and, and like come awake. So Ephesians 5 talks about letting the light of Christ shine upon you. And it says like, wake up, O sleeper. Let the light of Christ shine. Would you open up your eyes? Would you come out of your slumber? Would you, would you just think more clearly? And almost there's this spiritual grogginess that we carry. It's what allows us to sin and feel comfortable with it. It's what allows us to marginalize other image bearers. It's what allows us to kind of go through the motions of religion without it ever impacting our soul. There's kind of this sleepiness about us. And Advent, I think, is meant to turn the lights on, to kind of wake us up a little bit, to stop our hearts and say, hey, there actually is quite a bit more. But, but I wonder just in your heart as you're engaging the season, are you looking for more? Are you looking for Christmas to be more than just like one ceremonial day, one moment of celebration, one moment of remembering, one, one event in history, or, or is it marking like everything? I think the, the fact that it traces this long thread throughout the Old Testament is hinting to us that it's meant to mark everything. All of our longings, all of our desires, and all that we're looking forward to. The, the fact that they were looking for something that no person could fully satisfy, and that Christ actually promised to come back to complete what he began, gives us both permission to have desire, but also kind of shines a light on the need for more desire. I want to just like, Turn the volume up on what's inside your heart and validate it and say, yeah, that ache you have, that longing you have, that numbness you have, that thing where you feel like, man, there's got to be something more to life, isn't there? That thing is actually answered in the questions that we're asking during this Advent season, which is, what did God promise? What did Christ come to do? What did we actually need? So we've used the illustration last week of the way a river gets formed, kind of small at the headwaters, and then all these tributaries kind of feed into it to where it's this kind of massive river. So you think about the way the Mississippi River functions. In that space, what we're doing is tracing this promise. And we looked in Genesis 3 last week. It's the very first book of the Bible. So you don't get very far into the story before you see a massive need. And you see that what Christmas came to address is so deep it actually broke the world. Like, like the need that's there, this sin is actually something that shattered the way God had designed us to relate to him, to, to relate to each other, and set us on this journey of a wandering, longing to be restored and renewed. So Genesis 3 turns the volume up and just says, hey, what, what is missing, what is broken is not something that's sentimentality or religious activity or you just trying harder or doing better or you learning some new things. It wouldn't be enough. You needed something more. And we saw in Genesis 3.15 this promise of a descendant of Eve that would come and would defeat our ancient enemy. And then we saw as we get out of the end of that chapter, we see God actually making a sacrifice to clothe his people, foreshadowing what we might need. Again, not just someone who's going to come and be born, but somebody who would actually take our place, someone who would actually cover us, somebody who would actually clothe us. So throughout the rest of the Old Testament, then, understand this. Every child that's born from this line, the question is, is that going to be the one? So with Cain and Abel, right, they say that's the one of your descendants is going to come. So the obvious question is, is it the next descendant? Like, why, why would it not be? And then you see murder there. 
And then you wonder, is, is it the next child? Is it the next child? And you get to like Noah, and then you get to Abraham, and you get to Isaac, and you get to Jacob. All of these people, kind of the promises continuing that God's making a covenant with them. And we're always asking, is this the one? Is this the one who's going to fulfill the promise that God made to his people? And every time, over and over again, because of how they live their lives, you see, no, they're not able to rescue and redeem. If the original scene here is the evil one comes and tempts God's people, what the story shows us is everybody born after Adam and Eve are also tempted and also fail. So, so we get into places like Moses and Joshua, and we wonder, would these conquerors, these deliverers, these ones who will rescue and emancipate, are they the ones? And you see sin traced throughout their life. And so then you come to the judges in the Old Testament and you think through this series of people, maybe one of these judges would be the one who would be the descendant, the one who would actually come and rescue. And you just see failure after failure after failure. So then you start to say, well, maybe it would be a king. And actually the people ask for a king. They're looking at the nations around them and they see that they have kings. And so they're dissatisfied with a relationship with a God they can't see and touch. So they, they ask for a king, but it's not just an earthly ruler. They're asking for someone to come and deliver someone to come and rescue right this is the loaded in promise that they've had their whole life and so we see Saul come on the scene and we wonder is this the one is this the king is this the one who will deliver and then we see a life of unfaithfulness with Saul and then we see King David this unlikely one the youngest son the the one who who actually doesn't look like he would matter to much God actually anoints him and hope begins to rise as we see that David is a man after God's own heart. We see him defeating giants and we see him engaging. We're watching the story, one who just be the one, one who actually was the promised Messiah. And we'll see throughout David's life, actually, he, he fails as well. It comes after this scene that we read where he falls into sin with Bathsheba, which is adultery and murder and betrayal. And the whole dynasty begins to fall apart. But at this spot, the kind of deliverer, the kind of king who would come and rescue his people. So, so we hit week two of Advent, asking on this river here, what is the promise that's made? That could the one in the line of David? And it's like engaged for a summary of redemptive history. promise of an eternal dynasty. So I'm going to use D's here, desire, deeds, and dynasty. So in chapter 17, verse 1, if you've closed your Bible or open up back your phone again on page 348 in that pew Bible, let's start here with David's desire. And again, it's the kind of thing that we've been longing for. And from, from here, the prophets will, will amplify that longing. But at this spot, we're wondering if David is this ultimate descendant. So here's what happens. In verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, Now when David lived in his house, this palace that he had, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, this beautiful place, but, but the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is under a tent. It's in the tabernacle. It's a, it's a temporary dwelling. It's still the place where they, they hauled it through the desert. So he's saying, and surely by now we should build a temple. So Nathan says to David, Go and do all that is in your heart because God is with you. So I want to talk about David's desire for a moment. In some ways, it's a beautiful desire. It's a desire to honor God. It's a desire to have a place of worship. It's a desire actually to see God exalted. 
And it seems to be somewhat mixed. God doesn't say, hey, that's amazing, great desire. He actually is going to correct him a little bit. So there's a good part of David's desire, but there's also maybe a mixed part of it. And it matches our desires. You know that feeling when it's like Christmas time and you just got like a bonus check or you're looking at your, your end of year income and you see some needs and there's a good part of you that wants to respond to needs. So there's a red kettle on the corner. There's emails that come in your inbox about ways you can participate. There are real needs. You're drawn to those needs. But there's also sometimes in the back of our mind this guilty feeling that sounds something like, after all I've been given, shouldn't I give? And it's like so close. It's like pretty good desire. It's pretty amazing to think about sharing what you have but sometimes there's like a guilt inside of it as if if you gave a few hundred bucks or you dropped enough times in that red kettle, then you would somehow appease the guilt from using the rest of your resources the way you want to the other, I don't know, 340 whatever days of the year that you, that you want. You know what I'm talking about? There's like a good desire. Hey, that's a need. I care about that. I want to meet that. And in the back of our mind, there's this maybe a, a guilty thing of like, well, if I, if I did meet that, then it would justify the way I'm using the rest of these resources. Maybe it's just me looking at your faces like you're going, you are a monster, Pastor. Uh, I am. I, 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 maybe all of us are, but I know I, know I am. But, but just think about that mixed motive here for a moment. Because the way kings thought about temples in the ancient world was very much about the deity they were worshiping, but they were also shrines to their own power. Think about pyramids and the Sphinx, and you think about these ancient temples. I mean, it very much was for the deity, but all of that worship was leverage. All of it was getting something back and managing and manipulating the gods to give what you needed. So it had in it this desire also to be seen as great. The great kings of old built monuments to themselves in the name of building temples. So scholars, without accusing David of the same kind of malice that's in my heart, just kind of wonder, hey, could it be that part of what David's doing here is saying, hey, I have this huge house, I have this huge palace. I feel kind of weird about that, that my deity is worshiping a tent. Hey, so what if we built a big monument? And by the way, for, for generations, people will come by and go, wow, look at what David built. It just gives us a permission, I think, to examine some of our desires. And again, I think the way God responds to him, he doesn't slam him, he doesn't make fun of him, he doesn't shame him and rebuke him, but, but there is kind of a challenge to that way of thinking that I just think is worth slowing down and being honest about, that even the good desires we have are often tainted with something else. Which again gets at this idea of why do we need Christmas? Because it's more than just thinking better thoughts about God. It's more than just being kinder. There's something deep inside of us that needs to be healed. There's something deep inside of us that even takes something beautiful like giving and has a greedy kind of guilt-releasing part to it. Or take something like worship and can make it about you as well. Just want to propose the idea that maybe we're more mixed in our desires than we're honest about. And a story like this, because David kind of shows some of that, gives us permission to be honest about our own hearts. And again, it points to what we actually need. Because you and I can't fix that. Like those desires are really tangled up. There's something deeper at the heart level that we need. And in fact, we'll see David's desires go off the rails. We'll see David move from a man after God's own heart to a man whose heart is is lustful and impassioned for what he wants. 
able even to murder and lie and deceive and shatter the whole kingdom to get what he wants. His desires are mixed. Not only can he not be the Savior, his, he needs a Savior, which is part of the hope that we all have. Hey, it's probably worth just noting as well, there's something in here, we don't want to make too much of it, but, but Nathan the prophet just kind of gives him a thumbs up. Again, Nathan doesn't get rebuked either, but, but he obviously doesn't have the thumbs up from God, which just like cautions us as a community as we're engaging with each other. Let's make sure we're praying and going to God's word because nowhere he's going to say going on here, God, God hasn't asked for anybody to build him a temple. He's like, hey, you, you haven't heard me ask this of the judges. The word doesn't say, would you build this for me? He's saying, actually, the desire you have, even though maybe it's a good desire, isn't what I have for you now. There's just a little bit of a caution in the community that a good idea gets prayed over and brought to the scriptures. That's a total parenthesis. Nothing about Christmas. There's just like a, a culture-setting thing for us to be people of the word and people of prayer. But, but I think we'd be amiss to not just at least name that. Okay, so, so that's the desire there. We see this mixture, and then we see actually this exposure of that desire as God goes on to the next part, which is him actually talking about God's faithful deeds. So, so David's desire, and then God's deeds. So verse 3 says, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And here's God speaking to Nathan, who's going to share to David, and we get to listen in. And by listening in, we get to be instructed as well. It says, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I've gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. I'm everywhere, he's saying, in all places where I have moved with all Israel. Did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built a house for me, a house made out of cedar? So the first thing here that God actually talks about is his faithful presence with his people. I want to put in this category, God's going to review his deeds, like what he has done. It's going to answer the question of, should David build a temple? That's kind of where we're going. But, but in that space, there's this reminder of who God is and what he's done. And the first thing he says is, I'm the kind of God who has dwelt with my people. I've, I've not been limited to a structure. I, I am with you. He's given us his presence. He's moved Along with us, God's faithful deeds are to already be with his people. He doesn't need a temple to come and visit, to be with us. He has dwelled with them. He has been everywhere from tent to tent, from, from dwelling to dwelling. Like the scriptures say, like in Isaiah 66, that heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. The universe is God's temple. He exists everywhere, he's saying. So I haven't needed a place for my presence to reside like that, I am everywhere. I am with you, he's saying. And in that space, there's something beautiful the way he says, with the, the, all these times, even with the judges, I didn't ask them to build me anything as I asked them to shepherd my people. Like the heart of God is to shepherd his people, to be with his people. And yes, he wants his own glory because when you see him for who he is in all of his glory, you're transformed and changed. And that is really good for you. So God's the only being in the universe who can demand his own glory and that not be egotism. But, but would you notice, though, the way he talks about what he's after is to be with his people and to shepherd them. Again, he, he also wants his glory. Let me just be really clear. God is a glorious being, the one who rules the entire universe. He wants you to see him for who he really is. But he's not limited to a dwelling place. And in fact, to think like that would make it too small of a thing. He says he is everywhere, has been 
with his people the entire time. Simply, he doesn't need David to build him anything. He says, it's not you who are going to build me a house. I don't need one. And the way that the scriptures talk, like, if God did have needs, he wouldn't share them with us. Because there's nothing we could do about it. The needs that God would have. So, so as we walk through God's faithful deeds, kind of speaking to this situation with David's desire to build a temple, we see that God has given us his presence. Secondly, he has given us like a place or a position or an identity. He says in verse 7, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be the prince over my people Israel. In just this one verse, we see actually a redemptive pattern where, where God calls, God elects, God chooses, God gives identity, and God moves from this no-name shepherd to someone who has prominence. God is the one who does that. He takes the last and he gives significance to them. God actually in his redemptive pattern here in this place is showing us that he is the one who, who puts people in position. We don't put God in a position. He, he's already there. He actually then establishes. It's about identity. So God, God dwells with us in his presence and he gives us what we need in identity. And then in verse 8, he goes on to say that he protects us. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of one great uh, upon the earth. He's going to talk about enemies Again, he says, I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've, I've cut off all your enemies. I've, I've actually protected you. And you stop for a moment and go, man, the Old Testament is full of stories of war and pain and all kinds of trouble in those spaces. But we see, though, as God's faithfulness to protect and preserve his people, even in the midst of conflict. He wants David to know that he's not dependent on David to kind of build a temple. He's the one who actually provides for David, and he actually protects. He defends which again, I think in this list, we're seeing things that we need as well. What do we need Christmas for? We need God to come, actually, because we need protection. We saw in the garden we needed protection from the ancient serpent who lied to us. We need protection from even ourselves and sin. And we see God saying, hey, I'm going to actually deliver you from all of your enemies, inside enemies and outside enemies. So, so his, his presence, he, he promotes he protects, and then in verse 9, he, he plants or establishes or appoints. He says, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. There's that promise of protection again, but there's this idea that God establishes the place for his people that he establishes where we actually dwell. It's a reference to, to the land, which Hebrews would tell us is pointing to the ultimate resting place we have with God. He establishes a space where we actually meet with him, where we dwell with him, which gives meaning to passages like we read last week from John chapter 1, that God came down and dwelt among us. He took on human form and flesh and came and tabernacled, which is that, that word, he came and dwelled with us. So God established a dwelling place where we could actually meet with him. He, he plants and he provides and he protects and he gives identity and he's the one who actually kind of gives us his presence all along the way. 
Scholars would say that Chronicles is probably written after the exile, which is after God's people leave the promised land, are captured by pagan kings, and then are coming back into the promised land. So to hear that God is the one who establishes against their enemies would be such, such, such good news. The same way hearing that there's a prince of peace and a God who cares and there's great joy available is good news for you in seasons like Christmas where you're wondering like, man, is there hope and how do I go forward? And and was there any place where I can find peace because my job's not giving it to me, my relationships aren't giving it to me, the things I've acquired aren't giving it to me, my experiences aren't giving it to me, where can I find peace? And to hear that there is a, a prince of peace, one who actually is established for all of eternity, who, who never had a beginning and will never have an end, that that one offers you something that lasts and is incorruptible becomes really good news. To hear from exile people, to hear that God wants to establish a place for them to dwell would be amazing, amazing news. So, so he, he gives his presence, he, he promotes or establishes them, he protects them, and he plants them. He, he is with them. And then third, what we see in this text is that he promises an eternal dynasty. So the question is, is David the one who's going to actually rescue and save? Does he have the capacity? Does he have the ability to do what God promised from Genesis chapter 3? Will he be the descendant of Eve? That's the question rolling around the entire Old Testament. So we drop in the middle of verse 10 of chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles. It says this, Moreover, I declare to you, like I said those things, those four things, More than that, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. Not only are you not going to build me a house, I will build a house. And this word can be like a house. It can also be a family line, a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from, from him who was before you, speaking of Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and in all of my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. And it just closed in accordance with these words, in the accordance of his vision, Nathan shared all these things with David. Okay, God reviews what he has done in the past. And then he says, hey, moreover, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish a family line through the last four. Immediately we just asked, oh, does Israel have an earthly kingdom that dominates that area for forever? And what you find quickly in the history is they are conquered fast. Within one or two generations, the whole thing begins to fall apart. And so this can't be an earthly kingdom where there's this continual earthly reign that kind of brings about a political geopolitical peace there must be something more and this is the space where the prophets will pick this up and talk about the root of Jesse or the branch of Jesse or the root of David this one who was promised to come God is saying in this moment I'm going to establish a line that never goes away a forever kind of line one that will actually last And it's rooted in steadfast love. It has this relational connection to me. And it's in the promises of God that he actually says this is going to happen. Which means like our human failure, because it's not a human dynasty, can't thwart it. David's failures here in just the next couple of pages we would read both in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, which parallel each other. You'd read about David's kind of failures and go, well, man, there's no way that could be an eternal kingdom. 
So the idea that it's something more than human, something more than just something that an earthly descendant could establish means it's something that even an earthly king couldn't stop. You're wondering, like, do you need something more out of Christmas? Friends, I think you need a hope that's not dependent on somebody who's limited. Not dependent on somebody who has their own needs. Not limited on somebody who has their own mixed desires and struggles. You need something bigger and greater than that. And so what the Bible will do is talk about this line, right? This is big river going on. This is the Davidic covenant where he is just clear there will be a king coming from your line. But the language of forever speaks both to the need that we have for God to do something that's eternal, something way past just flesh and blood, to do something that will last for forever. And it speaks to his promise to sin a Messiah. The prophets will, will pick this up and they will play this out. So here's a couple examples. This is Isaiah uh, 11, verses 1 to 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who is David's father, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. There's a promise of one coming out of the line of David that would do more than any mere human could ever possibly do. Uh, Psalm 89 says this, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built upon forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. I have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Not just something that would have a temporalness to it that was limited to people. Something that was for forever. Even in the New Testament, like in Acts 13, we see the prophets like, or the apostles reviewing kind of the story of God. And we pick up in Acts 13, like in verse 22. And it says this, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, after he removed Saul. Of whom he testified and said, I have found, David, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. And he names him as Jesus. He is the one who was promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to the people of Israel. And as John has finished his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. This can't be just a person. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. You see the promise of a Savior, one that would be eternal. And the Bible ties it to Jesus. Here's the idea. What no earthly king could satisfy God deeply desires to give us. What no earthly king has the power or capacity to complete, God has this ability to fulfill. What no earthly king could ever accomplish, God himself has the power and the ability to pull it off and fulfill it. And it points now then to this idea that Christmas is aiming at something much, much deeper than you and I are aware of. So Ephesians 5 says, wake up, let the light of Christ shine upon you. If this passage is pointing to an eternal one, and if actually for centuries later after this promise, they'll still be waiting 
And Jesus will come on the scene and actually will be, will be so intense. They'll be wondering, like, what actually could this Messiah look like? Because there's prophecies that make him sound like a political king that brings about justice and righteousness and slays enemies. And there's also passages that talk about him being slayed, him actually absorbing our sin, him dying in our place. And so, so scholars would tell us at the time of Jesus' birth, there were people that were anticipating maybe there's multiple messiahs. Like no one person could hold all this. No, no one person could both die for our sins and rule and reign over our enemies. And so we get to a spot where we have this anticipation for something more than just human. And if Christmas is about a need you have that no human, including yourself, could actually satisfy, it speaks to something really, 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 really deep. Something deep that's eternal, something deep that you can't fix, and something so deep that when God addresses it and gives it to you, no human could ever take it away. No tragedy, no disease, no failure, no sin, no struggle could actually rob it from you. There's something so deep in this text that takes actually centuries and millennium to unfold that points to our deep, deep need that Christmas just shines a spotlight on. So, so I think the question for us is like, what are you doing with that need? Are you letting yourself be honest about the need? Are, are you looking to Jesus to fill that need? Or is there something about the allure of you being able to pull this off yourself? Like, is there a temple that you could build? Is there something you could accomplish? Is there a way that you could organize your life to where you could kind of get back on the rails and fix it? Or, or are you aware that what you need is so deep you could never actually satisfy it? I told you this river kind of runs throughout the whole Bible. And when you get to Revelation, you see Jesus himself call himself the root of David in chapter 22. And the beginning of Revelation, Jesus stands and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am everything. So this one that was born of a virgin some 2,000 years ago that took on human form, that came into our life, lived this frail little infant life that we'll celebrate in just a couple of weeks, was not merely human was not limited to flesh and blood, was not limited just to an earthly lineage. He had to be divine to fix what was so deep and broken inside of us. Again, the kind of brokenness that David's life just displays for us. Like what could atone for the adultery and the murder of this king? What, what could atone for the, the sins of this one who is said to be after God's own heart? And that space, as you look over David's shoulder, you ask about yourself and say, what could atone for me? What could actually fix what's wrong with me? What could fix and address what's deep inside? And because there is a Savior, we ask that question not with shame or to rub your face in some sort of brokenness, but as an invitation into freedom. Because if it's really deep and Christ died to fix that, then there's a deep, deep redemption for you as well. The logic is just if the wound is deeper than you thought, then the redemption can be deeper than you thought. If what you needed was actually more than you were aware of, then what God is promising you is more than what you're aware of as well. We need Christmas to wake us up both to our deep, deep need, but also to the beauty of what God has provided for us so that you don't settle in this season for experiences, sentimentality, things just getting better, having sweet moments, getting more gifts, getting time off, and all those are amazing. But you know, come January, I don't know, 4th, it's all faded by then. Christmas is a, a thing we engage with our whole heart 
to remind us that all of us need redemption. Every part of us, not just every person, but every part of us need this deep, deep redemption. So, so if we could just run back backwards through this text, like what did God come to do? He, he promised one that would come and be your Messiah. This eternal king, he just says he's promising that in Christ himself is the one that actually fulfills that. He promises or he said he had protected from his enemies. And so we see Jesus actually defeating our ancient enemy. The one who actually lied to our first parents in the garden. The one you've been taunted by your entire life. Jesus faces his temptation in the desert and is the only one all of humanity to be in that space and to not cave and fail. He's the only one to actually overcome sin. Therefore, he can die on a cross, not paying for his own sin, but paying for the rest of the world's sin. So he, he protects. And, and he's given us a place. He, he actually has come to dwell with us, and he promises a final rest, a, a dwelling with God, this rest that Revelation 21 talks about. Like this new heaven and new earth where everything will come and be made right. We sang about it. I cried when we sang, not just because of the organ, which was amazing, but I cried during that song thinking about the day when all the tears would go away and everything would be healed. God has given us a place with final rest. And it's not a space, right? Remember he's saying to David, I don't need you to put a little box around some things so that I can have a spot. I'm the kind of God who stands in all of the universe. My temple is everywhere. And so this dwelling is actually to welcome us into something that will never fade. And he gives us his presence. He said to David, hey, I've been with you from the very beginning. I've been wandering on the desert with you from tent to tent and dwelling to dwelling. And again, it is this thing that Jesus fulfills. He comes and he says that he is the new temple. It's super controversial in the gospel story, but he actually stands in the temple and says this whole thing is going to be torn down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they, they hear like anarchy they hear coup, they hear government overthrow. Jesus is speaking about the deepest need that we have. He, he is going to die. And then three days later, be raised. And by doing that, he makes a permanent place for us to be in the presence of God. I think those things point to why you need Christmas. Why you need to remember what Christmas is about. Why you need space and time to stop and say, there's actually something more than I'm consciously aware of from day to day that God desires to give me, that God says that I actually need, which puts me in a spot of asking, am I engaging with my needs and asking Jesus to meet them? Because I think you do engage with your needs, but when you're half asleep, kind of this grogginess, you tend to look to other things to meet your needs. So it's classic in our home where I'm asleep on the couch and the kids will come and ask me really complicated questions and only permission for things or for money or something like that. And because I'm groggy, I'll almost always agree to it just so I can go back to sleep. There's something about a sleepiness to us when temptation or, or, or a weaker, smaller pleasure or something that would promise you immediate relief that wouldn't actually bring about something that would satisfy, you're more susceptible to that when you're half asleep. So Advent turns all the lights on. It wakes us up and lets the light of Christ shine upon us this one that is the eternal descendant of David. This king that was going to be established for forever. The one who we'll read about in passages in the next couple of weeks, whose kingdom has no end, who reigns eternal, who, whose, whose beginning comes from the ancient 
days, who, who had no beginning and will never stop, that one has what you need and can meet the needs you have that Christmas is designed to show you. So, so this Advent season, I want to invite you to practice your creatureliness, your limitations, just to be honest about them. Because the more honest you are about what you need, the more boldly you can bring that to Jesus and ask him to heal, to forgive, and to help. Because the way he accomplished all these promises in chapter 17 is through his own death, burial, and resurrection. And then he left and said, I will come again and finish everything. He inaugurated the kingdom. He's coming back to have it fully consummated. And in the meantime, Advent helps us with our eyes open, wait. Have hope and be honest and wait. And what we do when we celebrate communion is say, he made a down payment on all the promises. I can have the foretaste of them now. And ultimately, he will finally fulfill everything he said to me. And we can bring those longings and desires to him. So I don't know, Christmas movies, gifts, holidays, do, do all that you want. But would you open your heart up to what Christmas is designed to say you really need? And then as we celebrate communion, let that foster something deep inside of your soul. Would you bow your head with me and close your eyes? Just take a moment and a deep breath. I'll just ask that question, what do you think you need? Could you be honest about it for a second? What do you know you need? What do you feel you need? What's so deep you wonder if there's actually a solution to it? Having named that, would you ask Jesus to speak to you in this moment? To tie what you need to what he provided. To tie what you need to what he promised. To tie what you need to his promised return. We don't have it all right now. There's more that we need, so it's okay if you have longings. It's okay if things don't feel fully buttoned up and tight. Bring that bundle to Jesus, that mess to Jesus, and ask him to speak to you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to take communion. Communion is a reminder of what Christ has done. It's meant to open our eyes. It's meant to turn the lights on to our soul. It's also meant to nourish us and to to remind us that this God who made a promise kept his promise. So for all the things I still need, I can have hope that he will fulfill the promises he made to finally satisfy everything. If he kept this promise to come, then when he said he'd come again, we can trust his promise. Communion communicates all that to you. If you're a follower of Christ, I invite you to come. If you're not a follower of Jesus, just stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of your worship guide that will give you some language of what it would sound like. But would you just stay in your seat pray and ask for Jesus to speak to you. He cares about those longings. You can ask him to meet all those longings. And what you'll hear from him is that he wants to meet them in Christ, his sacrifice on your behalf. He came to solve your biggest problem. There's gluten-free here in the middle, and then every aisle has a station. Let me just pray for us, and then when you're ready, you'll come forward, tear a piece of the bread off, and dip it in the cup. Jesus, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Would you speak now, eternal God, descendant of David, one who was promised and prophesied about, one who promises to return, would you speak now to your people what we need and what you've done to satisfy our need? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready and then we'll sing.